speech-language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. Today, we're continuing the Autism Podcast series, and we're talking about one of my very favorite things in the world, which is play and the development of play skills, particularly in children with autism or red flags for autism. Now, this show is packed with information, so let's just dive right in. So, the topic today that we are really, really looking at for you as a clinician, a speech-language pathologist, or another therapist in early intervention is the importance of assessing and treating play skills in very uh, young children with markers for autism, with red flags for autism, or particularly those who have already been diagnosed with autism. Now, play is such an important diagnostic indicator to look for our uh, look for in our little clients uh, with autism, or even with our our little clients who are language delayed. And here's why: there are seven screening indicators that we can use with our little guys that that. Point Point us in the direction that autism may um, be a likely diagnosis for that child. And again, this information is from ASHA, from the practice portal. And as a professional, a speech-language pathologist, please know that that information is there for you. They review over 40 different diagnoses along with uh, assessment information, and particularly strategies for intervention. And it's all research-based, so it's evidence-based, so you can trust this information. So let's look at these seven screening indicators. Uh, And again, we're just going to briefly review these here. The first one is eye contact and eye gaze. So when you have a little guy who's having difficulty paying attention to your face and following your point um, after 12 months, that's a big indicator that you need to take a look at autism for that child. The second one is orienting to one's own name. So when we have kids who are inconsistently responding to their names by 12 months, we need to start thinking about autism for those kids. Uh, It's really, really unusual, even for kids with other kinds of language delays, to not be responding to their uh, names by 12 months. So, and again, this research is is teasing out not only kids with comparing kids with autism to typically developing kids, but really it's teasing out kids with autism from all other kids, so typically developing kids and children with other kinds of speech language delays. So when we see a child who's 18 months, two years old, two and a half, three, who's not responding to his name, that is a really big deal, and we need to think about autism as a real diagnostic possibility for that child. The third indicator is pointing to or showing objects of interest. So let's think about pointing to and showing objects of interest. That really encompasses what? Uh, Gestures, so nonverbal communication, as well as uh, joint attention there. So being able to show somebody something and and both pay attention to it. I did an entire podcast about that uh, last week. And so look at show 404 with more information about joint attention. But we want children, when we show them something, to share that experience with us or when they show us something, to bring us things to look at. And they're, like we talked about before, uh, in the first indicator, looking at us and making eye contact That's so, so important right there, and that really indicates that they are sharing that experience with us, and there's reciprocity or that back-and-forth communication exchange uh, flowing, and so super, super important when we don't see kids pointing or showing 
uh, objects to adults by 15 months, we know that that's an indicator for autism. The fourth screening indicator is pretend play. And we're going to talk about this throughout the show today, but that's why play is so important because it's one of the things that lets us know that autism might be a possible diagnosis for that child rather than just speech language delay. And so let me give you some markers here. Uh, two important age uh Milestones, we want kids demonstrating familiar objects and how they're uh, used by 15 months. And so when we have a kid that, uh, let's say there's a whole uh, group of toys here uh, and we're playing with little baby dolls or characters somehow and we have, say, a, a cup, we want to see that child. Even if he's not yet, by 24 months, he should be pretending like he's taking that cup and, and, sh and, uh, making the baby doll drink, but by 15 months, we want him doing that kind of thing on his own so that if he sees a brush laying there, he starts to brush his own hair. If he sees a pair of sunglasses, he tries to put those on his eyes. And again, by 24 months, we want to see him doing that uh, in a real pretend fashion. So that's uh, a really, really important indicator. And, and play, you're going to know so much more about play by the end of this hour. We'll just keep going uh, with that one. The fifth indicator when we're screening children for autism is kids who do not imitate actions and sounds by the time they're 16 to 18 months. So this is a kid who does not watch other people say to learn how to wave bye-bye and a kid who isn't trying to repeat words when his parents are uh, trying to teach him how to talk. So kids who don't imitate waving uh, gestures, this piece of research doesn't say this, but I use the marker with 12, flat, uh, 12 months. If I don't see a kid wavy bye-bye by 12 months, particularly in imitation of another person, I start to think about autism for that child. The sixth indicator is nonverbal communication. We talked about this a little bit already with the pointing, and I just talked about it with waving bye-bye. Gestures are so hard for children with autism to acquire. And so when they're, and actually that's one of the big uh, core diagnostic features that we talked about way back in show 401 when we were talking about explaining autism to parents. And so this is just a continuation of that. When we have kids who don't use a verb, variety of gestures by 16 months and Dr. Amy Weatherby says kids her, based on her research at firstwords.org, she's saying that 16 gestures by 16 months. And so that's a marker that really, really has uh, proven to be true in my own experience, and I bet it is in yours too. When we have kids that don't learn gestures, aren't learning to wave bye-bye, aren't learning to point, aren't clapping uh, when, to indicate excitement, aren't using that symbolism, and again, even understanding uh, those gestures when someone else uses a gesture with them, that's a big, big marker for autism. The last one, of course, is language development. Kids with autism exhibit different kinds of delays and disordered patterns of learning how to talk and learning uh, to use words and learning what words mean. And so when we see some big discrepancies there, we should always think about autism, particularly when a child's expressive language skills exceed his receptive language skills. So why is that important? In typically developing children, they always what? They always understand more than they can say. So think about a 15-month-old or an 18-month-old who's following a lot of directions. Their mom, uh, simple directions, things like go throw your diaper away or put your cup in the sink or bring me your shoes. When a kid can't do that kind of thing, but he can say that, he's maybe, or not that, but using some other phrases, 
perhaps echolalically or with echolalia, we're seeing a lot of that. That's a big difference. So when, as a speech language pathologist, when you are assessing a child and you've given them your test and the expressive scores are higher than receptive language age equivalencies, there's a problem there. And you need to really, really think about autism for that child. So again, those are from the ASHA practice portal in the autism spectrum um, disorders section. So take a look at that information. I've also, I'm planning to complete another little short therapy tip of the week uh, with these seven indicators uh, in hopes that you can share that information with parents too and have something to really talk with them about. And so I hope that that will uh, be a good tool for you. And if you need more information about uh, the seven indicators that we've talked about, I have a full length CE course about this as well. It's called Characteristics That Differentiate Autism from Other Language Delays, and it's show 1000, and it is just packed with great information. All right, so parents, if you are watching this here on YouTube, or if you are listening to this podcast, uh, with whatever you use. And if you're thinking, okay, out of those seven things, my child has four or five of those. I don't think I need to be worried about autism. She said all seven. That's not true. I I didn't say that, but I know how parents justify this. And I know in my own experience as a mom, we can be so clouded by what's really going on with our our own children. And as they get older, uh, it it seems to get a little easier. But when they are tiny and in this and they're toddlers, they're one and two and three. Gosh, it's so easy to miss these kinds of things. So if you are a parent and you are concerned about this, please talk with your child's pediatrician about that. You've got two courses of action. You may want to go ahead and get a referral for a full developmental evaluation uh, to rule out autism. Some parents are there and are ready for that. And if that scares you to death, you don't have to do that. You can just go ahead and decide to take a more cautious approach and just begin speech therapy. Because if you are watching or listening to a show like this, or if you are following my work at teachmetotalk.com, I know you're worried about language development. And so take that concern seriously. Trust your gut and your instincts on that and go ahead and talk with your child's pediatrician. Please don't wait for or opt for that wait and see approach. You know, over the years in my nearly 30 year career, that's the one regret that so many parents share with me is that they waited. They knew something was wrong. They were afraid something was wrong, but they never really took that next step with talking to the doctor or if the doctor said to them, oh, just wait and see. Wait till he's two. This isn't a big deal. It is a big deal. And if the physician were really, really taking the time to look at the markers for autism and the red flags for autism, that's totally different than a doctor who's just kind of dismissing it. He's a boy. He'll talk, he'll talk later. Boys talk late. That is just not true. So please, please uh, think about that today, and I want to encourage you to go to my website at teachmetotalk.com and to get some additional information. All right, so back to our topic about play. Now, many times parents and some therapists really, really underestimate the significance of play skills. So when we as therapists talk about this with parents, sometimes we're met with resistance. And I've already used that example of a parent who says, I just want to work on talking. I don't understand why you're trying to talk to me about play skills. Well, those pre-linguistic skills really, really, really do matter. And let me give you some reasons play is so important and why we need to assess and treat play skills uh, for all children on our caseloads who are toddlers and preschoolers, but particularly for those kids that we think have red flags for autism. And if you are purchasing continuing education credit for this show for only $5, you know, what a deal, 
uh, go ahead and take a look at your handout because I've, I've, I've organized today's show, the show notes from today's show, a little differently. You can see how packed with information it is. Before we release it, I may, actually looking at it now, think I'm going to go ahead and extend it to three pages versus two so the print's not so tiny. But the whole first section here is talking about um, why we assess and treat uh, play skills in young children with autism. We've talked about that it's so important. It's one of the seven indicators that differentiate autism from other kinds of uh, language delays. But the second reason is that play is such an important uh, way to measure cognitive skill development and even receptive language in kids who are not yet talking. And we spent some time talking about this in the last show and in the show before. So go back and listen to and watch shows 404, 403 to talk about cognitive, as uh, we talked about cognitive development in children with red flags uh, for autism and why that's so important and how we can really, and again, we're looking at this today, how we can use play to really tell where a kid is developmentally when we don't have the uh, as accurate a measure as when children are talking and they are able to really articulate and say uh, the things that we know so uh, the things that they know so children with cognitive skill development remember that co what are cognitive skills how do you explain this to parents well cognitive skills are how we think, how we plan, how we pay attention, and how we remember. And so sometimes those areas are strengths for kids with autism. Lots of times they have just these zany, brainy memories. And again, when we are um, looking at their own preferences in their learning style. Some kids, some really young kids with autism, generalize those cognitive strengths into play skills with toys, and sometimes they don't. And so again, we have to really look at that. And, it, and kids who are have some other red flags for autism but are playing, research tells us that toddlers with ASD who have better play skills are much more likely, as toddlers, better play skills as toddlers are much more likely to have better play skills and language skills when they they are older children and uh, become school age. So that is such important, compelling support for uh, teaching play and really talking with parents about play and making play a really, really big part of our treatment plans. All right, now my favorite expert in this area is Dr. Carol Westby, and her work focuses on how language is actually intertwined with a child's play skills and with his or her literacy levels. So here's the thing that had she's really, really taught me with her work. A child's language skills never surpass or outpace their play skills. Now, a kid may be saying more, but truly communicating more, that that real language piece, we're never, ever going to see that. Now, we may see kids with play skills that surpass their language, and goodness, we see that with kids who have intact cognitive skills. You know, they are right on par with their little peers as far as uh, what they understand, or even receptive language. But then when we look at their expressive language, there there's a big lag there. And again, that's kind of the norm. when we Even when we think about language delays, kids understanding more than they can say. But the same thing is kind of uh, true with play. We want their play skills. When we're looking at that, uh, we, we want those to be uh, much further along. Even for a kid who has uh, expressive language delays, we want them 
uh, really, really playing at that same level as other little uh, other little friends their own ages. All right, so let's take a look now at the three main reasons that kids with autism or red flags for autism have difficulty learning how to play. Well, first of all, toddlers with autism often spend all or most of their playtime exploring rather than uh, diving into these more advanced levels of play. And we're going to talk about those stages of play in just a minute, but let's think about that. Lots of kids with autism autism are really, really, uh, they, they, they learn with their eyes. And what does that mean? They have strong visual preferences. So they may hold toys directly in front of their eyes. I mean, I'm sure you've seen that with a, maybe their iPad, their faces are right down there, just kind of, their little eyes are practically on the screen. I think, gosh, sometimes I can see her eyelashes. <laughs> Grace the screen right there. That's how she's close to how close she is to that. Or um, a toy. They may pick up something like a Hot Wheels car, and they're just totally fascinated with how the little wheels turn. And so they're just right down there on it. Or if they're on the on the floor, they're laying on their tummies so that they can get down as close as they can to get their little eyes right there. So um, that that's certainly something that's an exploratory pattern that we see younger babies. They mouth toys and look at toys and touch toys and flip them all around and don't really do much with them. And I try to think, gosh, a kid with autism is at that same developmental level with his play skills. He he doesn't move past that to that next phase. And so, again, that's just an inherent uh, characteristic of autism, and it's an example that I use a lot with parents so that they can kind of understand where their child is developmentally. There are certainly uh, kids who we think about exploring sometimes as a motor activity, and we see this in our friends with autism. My goodness, they are busy. They are running and jumping and crashing and just doing everything they can with their little bodies all day long. And they are so preoccupied with that, with keeping their little internal systems regulated, that they miss out on opportunities to learn how to play with toys. And so you can see that exploratory phase, kind of they're stuck there. They're staying there. And so that's the first reason that kids with autism may have difficulty learning how to play. Uh, I want to give you kind of an example with that too and again this is something that I talk about that's been so successful with helping parents understand this and so we take a really common toy like blocks and so let's talk about how in typical development or even in kids with other kinds of language delays let's talk about how they've learned how to play with the blocks and how their block play looks so first what do they do with those blocks they explore those blocks meaning that they we talked about it before. They look at it. They put it in their mouths. They hold it. They transfer it to the other hand. And so that's that exploratory play phase. And then over time, what happens? They've gotten a little bit more motor control. They can sit up. And so then what do they do with that block? They're holding it. And then you can watch them. They try to, they, they begin to do things like purposefully drop the block or maybe, um, maybe toss it even a little bit, maybe not a full out throw, but a little toss there. And so that play does it, or, or they're transferring the the block from one hand to the, to the next. And now as a parent, you may think, big deal. As a therapist, we get excited about this kind of stuff, don't we? Because we see that that child is moving along motorically. And we know a lot of times motor drives cognitive development. So we're excited about that. That baby has moved on to, he's not really playing with the block yet. It's non-functional. 
we're going to talk about in a minute, but he's certainly handling it better. And that's that next little rung of development. After a while with a baby, uh, a toddler, there's another leap in cognitive and motor development and they start to be able to watch you and do what you do when you play with them with the blocks. So what might they do? They may try to stack the blocks more often than not after you stack the blocks and you show them, show them how fun it is, they start to knock it over and that can be kind of a fun little turn-taking game there and then they want to start again. So can you see they've gone from just looking at the block and trying to get the block in their mouth to really using the block the way that it's intended. So that's functional play. So they've stacked the blocks again there. And so that's that next little uh, rung of development, that next little step, that next little stage of play there. And so then what happens? Over time, that child becomes more mature and more symbolic. And now he's starting to kind of hold pictures in his mind of other other, other uh, objects or events or activities. And he begins to substitute that block for that other object that he's thinking about. So this is where tree pretending comes in. So this is where a kid might start to pretend that his block is a car and drive it around. Or he pretends that his block is a telephone and he puts his block up uh, on his ear. That's by about you know 24 months or so that that object substitution starts to come in in typical development. And so again, he's really, really um, moved on to be able to do that. He may start to really come, even before he does that object, object substitution or at, at around the same developmental period, uh, shortly thereafter, he starts to um, combine blocks. So he might build, use the blocks to build something. So he's building a little house or he might be making a train with his blocks. So again, you can see how he's a, a baby goes from just looking at that block and holding that block at about six months to really, really uh, becoming uh, uh, using the blocks for a variety of things. He's learned lots of different skills along the way by the time he's two and a half or three uh, with those same blocks. So think about that. So he's gone from exploration to non-functional use to functional use to tree play with pretending. And so that's what I do with parents is kind of walk them through that so they can see that. All right, let's talk about something else that we see in kids with autism that really, really affect their ability to play. And again, we're still looking at uh, this exploratory phase, and kids uh, with, uh, a lot of kids with markers for autism in this exploratory phase become super fixated, or highly ritualistic is probably a better way to word that, and so they start to use a lot of movements, so repetitive movements, repetitive uh, sounds or words, or repetitive movements with objects, and so those are classified as self-stimulatory behaviors, and as therapists, you know, we shorten that and call those stems, and so those repetitive patterns may become all-consuming with children so that they can do nothing else with a toy, so let's think about something like uh, a kid who has to, a kid who likes to spin, and he's discovered that he likes to spin, and so then what does he do with every toy? He tries to spin it, right, and so they're kind of stuck, right? Right there. We call those stems, we call that self-stimulatory play, but sometimes we don't explain that to parents and say, you know, he is just right there in that exploratory phase. This is so exciting to him. For some reason, he's getting so much feedback from this that he really is, he's just kind of and, and I've said it, and I'll say it again, stuck. He's just kind of stuck at that level. And so you talk to parents about that and say, you know, this is part of autism. This is how it looks. We've really got to teach him how to play. So 
again, that this is why play skills would stall in that exploratory phase at that earliest developmental level. The second reason that play is uh, disrupted with kids with autism is that sometimes they're so inflexible when they're playing with toys. And so they don't have a lot of variety with toys. They're not very spontaneous. So they may adamantly stick to a few preferred play routines rather than learning how to play with lots of different toys or even learning how to do lots of different actions with toys. And so uh, again, this inflexibility can kind of show up as hoarding <laughs> when a child is playing so that he spends so much of his time just gathering and not wanting anybody else to touch the toys. And so that that is the reason he doesn't move on with play. That's kind of where he's fixated or where he's stuck, for lack of a better word. And so that's a reason that he... Um, doesn't learn how to play there and his all kids that have uh, both of these problems are limited usually beyond those very established over rehearsed play patterns so they do the same things over and over and over and so that's why kids can't bump on up to that next stage of play the third reason that children with autism may have difficulty learning how to play with toys is that uh, they don't imitate. And we talked about this back when we were looking at the indicators a few minutes ago. So imitation is so, so important. And it always begins as a social skill, meaning that the child shows interest in what you were doing and then he wants to copy that movement. And so at that point, again, imitation is a motor skill, but it also is a social skill. And that's what I, that, that's what I said at the beginning is he's looking at you. That's the social piece. And then it becomes the motor piece. And so kids with autism can struggle with either of those pieces or a lot of times both, the social piece and the, imit uh, the motor imitation. And so you can totally see how uh, that affects play development. A kid with uh, social issues is so intensely self-directed in their attention that they are just focused on what they are doing and what they want to pay attention to. And again, it's so hard to break that. And, and when you want to show them something or when you want to get their attention, it may take you a while. And kids sometimes overreact to your attempts to get them to interact with you and participate with you. Uh, when they have autism. So think about that and um, just know that that's part of it. The social skills have, social skill differences have prevented him from learning how to play. And certainly the motoric issues, and we've talked about this before with motor planning and how important that is for not only learning how to talk, but what to do with their bodies as they learn how to play. And a lot of times we'll see a kid who's really struggling with something like opening a door uh, in in play they just they try to push it instead of pull it open and they just can't seem to get past you know oh I've got to do something different here and so even though a kid too you may see it sometimes with play with older siblings they may be watching their older sibling do something and but they still can't make their own little bodies do it they just can't kind of get it from here to here <laughs> from their brains is the thought to their little hands to be able to um, perform a particular action so those kinds of issues are a big, big deal. A kid may also have some emotional components with this. He has such a low uh, tolerance, low frustration tolerance that he gets mad when you try to show him, when you try to help him, when you try to do the social piece and say, you know, look at me, watch me, I will show you how to do it. 
He can't do that. Or even the motor piece like we just talked about. And so then what does he do? He gets mad like all of us do. Most of us do. A lot of us do. When we can't when uh, just figure out how to do something that, that we desperately want to do. And so they, they just they become aggressive or they throw or they destroy or they hurt you or whatever. So, um, again, that's a big, big reason that uh, kids with autism and red flags for autism aren't learning how to play with toys. So I wanted to be sure to talk about that. And that's, again, why you as a therapist need to know these reasons because you need to be able to explain this to parents so that they get it. It's not just that he's choosing not to play with toys. It's not that he won't play with toys. He can't play with toys. And so talk with parents about that really, really important um, distinction there. All right, so now let's look at some more specific ways that we can, uh, that let us know that a child is not learning to play with toys as expected. And this is a little list of questions, and this is straight from, as I mentioned before, the Autism Workbook, but based on a lot of different people's work. And you can see the research there for that. So here's how we know that play is not, not developing as expected. So a child's play skills are extremely delayed. He may be two, but his play skills look uh, like that of a younger baby. So again, he might still be in that exploratory phase, mouthing, looking at, dropping, throwing, holding toys, rather than really using familiar toys as they are intended. The second thing that we see in kids that have difficulty learning how to play is the interest in toys is restricted. We talked about this, that parents will say he doesn't like toys and anything you show him, he may just seem oblivious to that. And that's why parents kind of think kids are a little bit more sophisticated or mature than they are because they'll say he doesn't even notice that. And again, they're thinking that or or they'll say he doesn't like that. He's dismissed that. They're thinking that it's a, a big choice that he's making. And, and more often than not, it's it, it's not. So that's a, a thing that we look for. Uh, a child doesn't pay attention to toys very long. He clearly prefers objects to people, meaning that if he loves Thomas the Train, he wants to do Thomas the Train 24-7. He does not uh, care as much about playing with you, even if you are the most fun person in the world. <laughs> he still prefers that train. Or even more importantly, it's the iPad. <laughs> he wants his iPad more than food. He wants his iPad more than taking a bath, which he almost also loves. So uh, think about that. And, you know, uh, that, that's, I talk to parents about that and say that, you know, it seems like he likes objects more than people. And so they sort of get that and start to uh, understand learning how to play with toys is going to be a bit of a challenge for that child. Another marker is that a child plays with toys in unexpected or repetitive ways. We've talked about the self-stimulatory things they can do. Uh, a toddler's not showing any signs of pretending. So while you have a kid that might be interested in things like flashcards or building with blocks or he's obsessed with his leapfrog toy that he can just repetitively push the buttons, he's not really doing anything with pretending. So again, those are some questions that you can ask and things that, can, that get parents on the right track with looking at play and giving it as much importance as as he should, as they should. All right, so what do we do? How do we begin to assess play and then provide intervention for that? Well, first we have to figure out where a child is currently functioning, and you can do that with standardized testing. But guys, my experience is I'm just going to look at these skills informally. So I've created an awesome chart for you that's in the autism workbook and this specifically is geared toward looking at play in children with autism and we've got the stages of play there and so if you have your handout go ahead and look
look at that. So, and this is mostly based on Dr. Westby's work for this uh, project. I will tell you that I'm finally finishing Stages of Play as its own complete project, and I'll have a lot more information about that along with links uh, so that you can purchase some toys and, and look at the uh, same toys that SLPs use and that I've found a lot of success with. But that's coming later. Today, we're just going to look at this sort of in a summary version. And again, take your handout and you'll see that I've, I have all seven stages of play here. Exploratory, non-functional, beginning functional, early symbolic, combining play actions with familiar routines, expanding play routines, and then early role play in games with rules. And so all the information is there on the handout just with what play looks like in that stage and then what a kid's language skills are in that stage. And this will probably freak you out if you have never looked at how closely a kid's play skills and language skills uh, and how, how similar uh, they are as far as what phase a child is in language development. And so look at that, but let's start with just this first exploratory stage here. And we're going to, again, uh, I, I'm going to tell you, this is just my go-to information, and this is exactly what I use when I'm looking at a child. And so um, it's just a really straightforward way that's easy for parents to explain to therapists. So I love this chart here. Now, um, the chart that's in the Autism Workbook is a little bit different than the chart that's uh, we have here on the handout because I didn't put age ranges on here and here's why I didn't do that. A lot of times parents get fixated on an age range for a child versus the developmental continuum. And so we want parents thinking about just working through, and we as therapists know this is what we do in therapy, we work through all these stages and we don't care about what the age is. I mean, we know that there's a delay and we know that a kid is behind, but we don't get fixated on that. We don't say, he's 36 months. Oh my goodness, let me see 36 months. I better jump up here to early role play and games with rules. We better do that because that's what he's supposed to be doing. If he is way back here at non-functional play, which again is under that 12-month level, that's where he is. We've got to meet him where he is. You can't get to that early role play in games with rules with the child until he's worked through these other phases. And that would, I spend a lot of time talking about that in uh, show 40, I guess it's 402, with meet a child where he is and how important that is with really, really starting where a child already is and then moving him through this, not starting at the end result. And I use that example with math and with algebra. And I'm not, I'm not going to use it again, but we wouldn't start teaching a kid who's in ninth grade algebra if he doesn't understand multiplication and division. And then we can't teach a kid multiplication and division unless he understands adding and subtracting. And you can't teach a kid adding and subtracting until he understands basic quantitative uh, concepts like, uh, you know, uh, even before that, it's rote counting. And so think about that with how these stages, how a kid has to move through these stages. And, and as a therapist, you may have to do some, you may have to do some talking to yourself. And you may have to say, wow, I have really been pushing this play thing. I've been trying to get kids to do early symbolic play when they're really not doing much functional play. So let's take a look at what these um, stages are, and we're going to kind of combine things because 
as usual, I've taken too long on the preliminary information, and I want to talk to you about the just everything therapy-related and intervention-related for the rest of this show. And so take your hand out. So we're going to kind of combine what's listed there in the first stage of play on your first page with the information on the second page with what intervention is. So let's take a look at that first stage, which is exploratory. And we talked a lot about that today already. That sensory and motor exploration of toys and objects as a child looks for and grasps and mouths uh, objects. And so what's going on with language development there? This is when kids start to develop joint attention. They have longer attention spans and they learn how to take turns. And again, remember in last show, we talked a lot about joint attention and turn taking. And so that's what's going on during this exploratory a phase of play. And so what do we do intervention-wise for kids? And you think, well, why are you going to work on exploratory? Because that's the first phase. With some kids, it's just uh, they've been motor explorers. So they're everywhere, but they don't pay a lot of attention to objects. doesn't matter how old they are. We've got to get them there. And so uh, what do we do intervention-wise? We provide safe objects for a child to look at, listen to, and yes, even mouth and container play is your very uh, best idea there. And remember, I, I said that I'm going to uh, take all this and really teach it in, in the way that it should be taught with lots of examples and lots of uh, demonstrations with what we do with toys. But for the sake of today's show, we're just going to think about exploratory play comes first, and we're going to give a child a lot of things to explore, uh, objects, different uh, different things there. So you might pick blocks, and uh, you can use baby toys and things like um, rattles and stuff, but for a lot of parents, they get they get upset and disappointed when you are trying to use things that, again, seem too babyish for their own child. So you might use more household objects in this uh, for this category of play and for your materials, and it might suggest that to parents. So when kids have been stuck, like with electronic toys or flashcards or uh, something that uh, you know, again, that they're just kind of stuck on, that's kind of their obsession or their fixation, I start with those, that really simple play with exploration with things like household items and even things sometimes like tape or bubble wrap or flashlights. <laughs> but, uh, think whatever a kid seems to like, whatever captures his interest. And so we want to talk about that with parents and talk about really that exploratory phase for kids who really don't sit down and do that. Now the next little phase is non-functional play. And this is uh, where kids are using toys and activities to uh, support uh, their uh, development or help them learn important cognitive concepts. So what would that be? Object permanence, cause and effect, and simple problem solving. And so when we have kids who do not understand those things, and these, again, are kids with uh, cognitive delays, not just language delays, they're, they're having difficulty learning how to learn. <laughs> and so when we have kids who are one and two and don't understand object permanence and aren't doing much with cause and effect kinds of play and don't move on to simple problem solving, and, and what are some examples of problem solving toys? Things like shape sorters, things like puzzles, things like uh, stacking rings. Uh, we talked about blocks. That's more like constructive play. But so many kids with autism can do this kind of play. And this is actually where they land or where they stay for a long time. But some kids can't. And so you help them learn 
um, through a process called deconstruction with a toy. And so what does that mean? That means that a child learns how to play with a toy, kind of how to undo it rather than assemble it. So let's think about these toys that we just mentioned, like puzzles and like stacking rings or shape sorters. A lot of times we have shape sorters, this would be a little hard for, but those other two are great examples. We want a kid to what? First, take their rings off the ring stacker rather than put them on. Or so for a piece of a puzzle, let's say you've got a wooden puzzle with six little pieces there and you're have, you notice that a child is having a lot of difficulty matching the correct puzzle piece to where it goes in the puzzle, you start with deconstru deconstruction. So you have him take the pieces out of the puzzle first. And so uh, kids like that. <laughs> they, they uh, we talked about blocks before where their part, the kids don't necessarily learn how to uh, stack the blocks first. What do they learn how to do first? They learn how to knock them down, right? So we kind of start at where the end phase with toys, the, the end, and then walk that back. And so that's a really, really great uh, way to get kids interested in learning how to play with autism. I've done a whole therapy tip a week of the week about that several years ago, and I'll try to link it here on the bottom so you can take a longer look at this and really understand how to do it. But this is your main therapy strategy at this point in treatment with kids when they're doing a lot of uh, non-functional play, meaning they're just handling toys. It's a little bit more than exploring. With exploring, we talked about, you know, things that a kid can, when he sees the toy, when he smells the toy, when he, if there's a music toy, he's listening to it, things that he does with his senses. Now this non-functional, I think about this is the handling stage. All right, he'll pick that toy up. He'll move it from hand to hand. He may even do, you know, really uh, simple things like learning how to bang the toy other kinds of motor movements and that's what we need to do during this period uh, particularly if we have a kid that's really uh, doing a lot of oral exploration meaning every toy is in his mouth we need to help those kids learn how to uh, use new actions so it is like banging together patting the toy tossing the toy just doing different things with it than they had originally done with that initial uh, sensory exploration and then of course here in non-functional with kids who are in this non-functional stage of play, we do think about those, the three big cognitive concepts, ob object permanence, cause and effect, and simple problem solving. All right, so then what do we do once a kid is doing a lot of that? Oh, let's talk about the uh, language skills that emerge during this non-functional stage of play. This is where kids bump it up a little bit. We talked about their in exploratory play. We looked at joint attention, a longer attention span, and turn-taking. And now what we're looking at is, is that next step up. So we've got communicative intent. So a lot of little pragmatic things start to emerge. So they may grunt when they are reaching for something. Uh, 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 like they want it. Gestures may also, uh, gestures, not may, gestures do <laughs> begin to emerge here. And so this is where a child learns how to clap in imitation of you. This is where a child learns how to point. This is where a child usually is learning how to shake his head. Usually no first and then yes for things. And also this is where single words start to develop. A child may use a few words for very specific context. So this might be a verbal routine. This might be a kid who only says go when you say ready, set. And he cannot say go unless he hears those two words before it. Otherwise, he just can't do it. And so, or he may only say mama when he first wakes up in the morning in his crib. And so he's got a couple of words, but they are really limited in how they use those words. And so you can see that that 
certainly correlates with where his play skill development is. And, and that's why I love Carol Westby's work. I mean, she really helped me understand this. Okay, so that's um, non-functional play. So let's move on to what comes next, which is they make it more purposeful. They are starting now to use familiar toys for their intended purposes. So we talked about if we had a set of baby doll accessories here and a kid uh, saw the brush, he would pick up the brush and start to brush his own hair. And, and these would be things he first will do it on himself, not on the doll. And that's really confusing for a lot of therapists because, you know, we're sometimes so, gosh, just again, hyper fixated on what we want to see a kid do and so we've got the baby doll there and we're shoving the baby doll in his face and you know have the have the spoon to feed the baby doll and we want him to do it and the kid just what does he want to do he just keeps wanting to put it in his own mouth and we get mad about that and we try to redirect it maybe not mad but you know what i mean we just keep trying to redirect him and uh, the the point is he's not there yet He's, he needs to use those little objects on himself first. And then do you know what he does in the next phase? He's going to learn how to use those objects on you or on another person. So instead of brushing his own hair or putting the, the baby doll spoon in his own mouth, he wants to feed you. He wants to brush your hair. And so that's, again, that next little rung. And then after that is when he would start to use objects on a doll or another kind of toy or another kind of character. So if you think about that kind of play and you're thinking, gosh, I've just been working with this kid on pretending or on functional use with objects forever and I just can't get him to do it uh, with other things start on himself first and I've, t I've talked about this I have a great therapy tip of the week or a uh, it's not even a therapy tip of the week it's a CEU course seven steps to teaching a pretend play go back and listen to that course and I will link that course as well because it's fantastic for helping you kind of understand how pretending develops, which is certainly um, the same kind of thing that we're looking at today with the development of play skills. So uh, in this functional stage, our goal here is to teach kids to use a wide variety of motor actions and to use toys in the way that they are intended. So if you have a kid that, like we talked about before, who's spinning everything, this is certainly, you know, gosh, he's not there yet. He's not at beginning functional play yet. He's still trying to do one action with lots of different things, and he's still trying to spin um uh, you know, let's use, let's stick with our same example. So he's sitting here with you. You've got the baby dolls and you want him to really show you how to pretend. But what does he do? He takes everything that's here and he wants to spin it. So um, the spoon that we were talking about before with feeding the baby doll, he's trying to spin the spoon and then he tries to spin the bowl and you've got some shoes there for the baby doll. Instead of even trying to, you know, he's certainly not going to put the little baby shoes on the baby doll and he, he may not even be putting the baby sh shoes trying to get them on his own foot. He's spinning it, so you know that he's not <clears throat> using those objects and toys as intended. Those stems are interfering with that. So what do we do? We use direct teaching. For some of those kids, you may have to back up to non-functional play, but let's just say, for the sake of the <laughs> example here, uh, what are we going to do? We're going to do a lot of direct teaching here and play with, with kids who are older than two and back at this level Oh my goodness, you cannot leave it to chance. You have got to do direct teaching to help them acquire their play skills. And you use a lot of cues. And, you know, you can think about verbal cues, visual cues, and tactile cues. And uh, over 10 years ago, I coined the phrase, tell him, show him, help him. So tell him are your verbal cues. 
show them your visual cues and then help them would be those uh, tactile or physical cues. And so that's how we help him play. We show him what to do. And because kids have so, with autism, have so much difficulty with imitation, a lot of that is that hands-on physical, not just telling, not just showing, but really, really helping a child learn how to play. So we take his little hands and uh, make him <laughs> do whatever uh, the action is with the toy. And again, that's not in a dictatorial way or super aggressive. We're just providing that level of cueing that he needs to uh, help him be able to learn how to play and show him. Uh, look, the ball goes in this hole and you take the ball and it's in the child's hand and then you take his hand and help him put the ball in the hole. Or if he's just looking at the hammer and kind of visually stemming on a hammer with a hammer and ball toy or a hammer and peg toy, you take his little hand as he's holding the hammer and you help him pound the pegs. And as a therapist, gosh, that's what we do all day, every day. Sometimes parents will help a child and provide that level of physical assistance during a daily routine. But for some reason during play, they don't do it as often and so we have to say and and here's another thing sometimes kids with autism have so many tactile sensitivities that they uh, really overreact to your touch. So you've got to be sure that they can see you coming, that you aren't using a light touch with them that could be too uncomfortable because it just feels icky, it feels kind of ticklish versus a firmer touch that's always, um, it's usually more regulatory for kids who have these kinds of sensory problems. And so we help parents by talking with them about the, uh, the uh, verbal cues that work, the visual cues that work like pointing, uh, like showing a child when you want to get his attention. You know, you, we may learn with a kid that's in this stage that we've got to just be right there with him and kind of, uh, we'll talk about this during troubleshooting, but use some environmental modifications to kind of pin him in, not necessarily belt him down in a high chair or restrain him or anything like that, but just so that you're manipulating his environment so that he can't run or <laughs> explore things that you don't want him to explore. You really want him to sit down and learn how to use the toy. And so you may stick him in a corner. Uh, when I did a lot of home visits and I was never quite sure what I was going to get when I got to a family's home, I didn't always, you know, I didn't, I never wanted to go be shut up in a kid's bedroom and work with him. That's not what I'm talking about. I want the parents right there with me, but I teach the parents how to maybe use a corner or there have been kids that, you know, have maybe like a little play tent or maybe they really like sitting under the table. You've got to get under there, too, <laughs> so that you can play with them in that really confined space and help limit those distractions. And again, we call that environmental manipulation a mom. A, a grandmother just might kind of call it common sense with I'm just going to eliminate the possibility that he will do anything else except this. And so that's certainly something that you can do. And certainly falls under the realm of uh, providing cueing and direct teaching to help a child learn how to play and use familiar objects and uh, toys as they were intended. All right, the next stage of play is early symbolic. Now, this is where we get to early pretending with one toy to represent something else during play based on very familiar everyday activities. So what in the world is that? This is when kids really do start to... Um, uh, really begin to play and you'll see them like we, we said in 
uh, beginning functional play. They start to, they, they take the objects that they are using appropriately. We, they take that one step further and you see that they are starting that early pretending. So instead of uh, feeding himself or pretend or trying to get the drink from the baby cup that you're showing him, now is the time when he begins to give the baby doll a drink or when he begins to give uh, the little stuffed animal that he's playing with. Uh, he tries to feed that. So that's early symbolic play. And language-wise, what's going on here? Well, this is where single words uh, are emerging. You know, we didn't do that language piece, I'm sorry, in the previous section with beginning functional play. That's when single words start to come in. And so we start to see single words. Remember back in the non-functional stage, Kids used a few words for very specific context. Well, now in beginning functional play that we just talked about, this is where single words really, really explode. And so not only do they get words, they learn how to use words uh, for different purposes. So they're pragmatic functions are coming in. So they use words to request and words to command and words to protest, words to label, words to respond, words to greet, or other kinds of social personal words. So that's where single words emerge with beginning functional play. So again, uh, a lot of times our kids with autism are stuck back on those other uh, two levels, two stages of play that come before this, and we say, why aren't they talking? Their play skills aren't there yet, so you've got to get their play there. And again, what are we doing with play? It's not play for play. It's because we're giving them the cognitive support. They've, you've got to give them something to talk about. <laughs> They've got to learn how the world works and what, how, how, how these toys, what, all these objects, how, what are they all for? They've got to learn that before they can begin to talk about them. And that makes so much sense to me. And I, I hope that you can use that explanation to parents uh, to help them understand that too. So by the time that they get to this fourth stage of play that we're talking about now with early symbolic, this is where their single words have even more variability in the function. We talked about, you know, how they could uh, use a single word before with all those uh, backup and beginning functional play with all those different pragmatic functions. Now they have even more functions they can use. Their form is different, so that's where we're looking at parts of speech or they start to learn early grammar, their form there, and certainly the content. That's vocabulary development. So this is where kids start to really explode with their language. Their vocabulary significantly increase, and I think that's, again, it goes hand in hand with their play. They're doing more in play. They understand more. They're com they, they start in this next section. Let's go on and move up to that. Uh, with, and, and we can talk about the strategies kind of with these two phases together, but this is where they start to combine play actions and familiar routines. So before, in that early symbolic stage, they're just doing one thing with one object. And so now what, the, what we see kids do a lot is they begin to do many things with one object or one thing with many objects. Did you get that? So they can take something like, gosh, what would be a good example here? They can take um, just any kind of toy and do several things with it, you know, and, and, and then th they can take that one action and then make lots of, lots of different uh, toys to it. Let's, let's think about, this is when kids kind of learn that sequential play, when they'll set up like a row of baby dolls, and instead of giving one baby doll a drink, they might have two or three baby dolls, and they want to give everybody a drink. And let me just say, kids with autism love this. <laughs> Why? Because they like lining things up, and they like that, seeing kind of that 
uh, sequential, organizational, and, and that's what sometimes makes their play look rigid. And you kind of, sometimes a mom will say, does he have OCD? <laughs> you know, it's just kind of part of it. We talked about that inflexibility and rigidity, and that's sometimes we can play to those strengths, and that's how we'll use a kid's kind of own personal preferences and their little quirks to get them to do more. We'll think, oh gosh, if I line these toys up, he's going to do it. And I'm sort of getting off the subject here because I'm going to talk about that more in the in the next podcast series with formal stages of play when we're t- unpacking all of this and talking about all of this in depth. But for right now, just know that that comes next. That's in this this stage where combining play actions with familiar things. So we're going to focus on performing several actions and uh, different actions with toys. And here, kids are really mimicking everyday activities of others. In the previous stage, remember how we talked about they just did everything themselves. So when they're starting to pretend, it's usually around their own daily routine. So around sleeping. So what do they do? They pretend to sleep. They play the night-night game with you. And then with toys, they make their baby doll go to sleep. But that's it. They just put the baby doll down, make the baby doll go to sleep, and that's all they're doing. And, And back and early symbolic. In this phase, a kid might pretend to rock the baby doll or wipe the baby doll's face like he's, uh, he, or, you know, give the baby doll a bath and then put the baby doll to sleep. So there are two things that a child has done there. And then they, when, when a kid is doing that and, and, I, and, and the way that we get a kid here, and I don't think I've said this yet, one of our most important strategies back with in the previous phase as well as now, is providing a lot of props. And so when we get a kid there, when, when we can see that he's, he's, he's using two different things like that, we know that he has entered this stage, and our job is to kind of keep that going. So when we see a kid that's stuck, a kid that won't put the farmer in the tractor and then drive the tractor to the barn and then get a cow from the barn and put it in the tractor, when we see a kid that's just, you know, on his belly, on the floor, stuck with just rolling that tractor back and forth, we know, gosh, no wonder he won't put that uh, the farmer in the tractor. He's not there yet. He doesn't know how to combine combine those actions. So what's going on with language with these kids? When they get there, when they can combine play actions, guess what they do? They combine words. So this is where phrases start to come uh, in. And we see kids begin to uh, take two words that they previously used and put those together as a phrase. Now, sometimes our little guys with autism are echolalic or they learn a lot of holistic phrases. So they say things like, give me that, I did it, where'd it go? And parents think, oh, well, he's used them phrases already. My kid's been doing that a lot. Not so fast. <laughs> I've already said those are holistic phrases, and that means that a kid has learned a phrase as one long word. So give me that to that kid is one word, give me that. Rather than we think about give me that being three words. And so you got to really tease that out. And boy, I've seen therapists miss that. I've, I've accompanied children to school system evaluations where he's just doing his little uh, holistic phrases one right after another. And the therapist is just so happy. And they're saying, oh, he's doing phrases. I'm so happy. I, I'm, he, I'm so glad I can mark him off on that. I'm, I didn't expect him to be using this much language. You know, and I have to really say those we need to still be counting those as single words those aren't real phrases yet he's not really uh, he doesn't have any variety with that he never uses the word me 
as a single word. You know, that's that's only to him part of give me that. You know, that's that's not its own entity, its own single word. And so be careful with that as a therapist. If you're a new therapist and haven't thought about that before, or um, let's say you've worked with different populations. You've been in school age or, oh my goodness, let's say you've worked with adults and you're now coming to work in early intervention. Those are things that you really, really have to think about and really, you learned that in grad school, but you have forgotten that you know that. <laughs> so uh, that's how you explain that to parents too. And you say, well, you know, he's not quite at that phrase level yet. He's getting there. I am so happy he can sequence that many syllables, but to him, that's one long word. And so parents will start to understand that and they won't be fooled by that and you don't need to be fooled by that either. All right, the next stage, our sixth stage of play here is expanding play routines. And this is where uh, kids now start to pretend using less frequent activities. So back in combining play actions and early symbolic, I, I forgot to say this, in early symbolic play, remember they used the, uh, they used the toy or the object on another person and in beginning functional play they use the toy or object on themselves and then here with uh, early symbolic play I think I've got let, let me start over let me just stop and say say it better in beginning functional play kids use objects themselves and er, and then they move on to using objects on other people by the time they get to early symbolic play which is the stage just before this one Gosh, I hope you're looking at your handout <laughs> when you're seeing this so you don't get confused. They start to use the object on with another toy. So the, the cup giving the baby doll a drink. And that's the point, too, that you know they have jumped to combining play actions with familiar routines. And this is where kids, too, start to imitate the everyday actions of others. So in combining play actions with familiar routines, they start to do what mom and dad do. So they start to pretend to cook. They start to pretend to shave like daddy. They may pretend to put on makeup like mommy. So you may see them take a block. Got some lipstick right here. Let's pretend the lipstick is a block. <laughs> you may see them take the block and, and put it on their mouths. And you think, oh my goodness, she is copying me. You know, especially if they see themselves in a mirror and you see themselves do that. What are they doing? They're imitating their moms putting on chapstick or lipstick or whatever they do. So, uh, again, we start to see that happen with uh, here with expanding play routines. Uh, they did the familiar routines of other people back in the other one. In expanding play routines, they move on with less frequent activities. So, they may start to pretend they're going to the zoo or going to the library, or going to uh, the doctor. Things that happen to them or another person even, but that they don't get to do very much. Or they pretend to be a fireman. Now, they've never been to a fire. The child has actually never been on a real fire truck. But now he's at the point that he can pretend things that he has seen other people do, or things that he has even seen on a television show, or a movie, or seen in a book. He he pretends to do that now. And so uh, the play becomes a lot more elaborate. So what is our job for intervention? We provide those props. So if uh, we can set him up with these things too. And so if we've seen that a kid is in the previous step with combining play actions with familiar routines, we have in there, oh gosh, he's pretending that he does everything that he or his parents do. He pretends he goes to work. He pretends he's buying groceries at the store. He pretends to 
uh, like he's the daddy and he's given uh, the child his little, let's say his little stuffed dog. He pretends like he's putting it to sleep and giving it a bath and all those things. Now you can set that up where you say, oh, do you think the dog wants to go see his grandmother? <laughs> or do you think the dog wants to go play at the playground? Or things that he doesn't get to do very often. Or like we said before, things like, uh, do you, do you want to, is the dog sick? Does he need to go see the doctor or the vet? And so that kind of thing really, really is where lots of our kids um, who are higher functioning with, with autism, where their language is coming along and where they've got, they've mastered this functional use and they're combining a few things, but that's where they have a real hard time kind of making that leap. And so, and this is what parents think about as true pretending too. And so a lot of times parents, again, we're seeing their kid way back where they're doing a lot of non-functional play. They're still back there at the padding, banging, throwing stage with the toy. And a parent is trying to talk to them about, oh, let's pretend that we're going to Pizza Hut and get some pizza. You know, of course, that would probably be before COVID, right? But they take a kid that's just to a level that's just well beyond their ability to understand that. And so uh, we've got to help parents with that, that we kind of, that we pull it back and that we show them on the chart where they're falling and talk about the kinds of play that are going to be most appropriate for where that kid is cognitively and language-wise. And expanding play routines, another really important thing happens. Kids learn how to plan play. And so this is a big therapy intervention for kids and it helps so much with the executive functioning and just all the kind of pulling all the skills that you've worked so hard to get kind of pulling all those together where a kid you decide that you're going to play maybe say birthday party and you say well what are we going to need for the birthday party and so you come up with you know he thinks oh I better go get my cake or uh, you know any might have some kind of pretend cake. It might be that you're making a pretend cake out of Play-Doh. And so that planning piece is so important. And that, that's the piece you need to focus on with expanding play routines. And here also in this stage of play is where parallel play develops. And remember what parallel play is. It's not that the kids are really, really interacting. What are they doing? They're just playing together. And so sometimes we even start parallel play too soon. So we have a kid that's way back at beginning functional play, and we think, oh, I'm going to put a peer with him so that he can imitate what that peer does. Look, that's that's three, that's three stages back. He's not there yet. And so parallel play doesn't come in until kids really – um, have, have started this uh, this pretending and not just started it, but really they're already combining objects, they're already expanding their play routines, and that's when uh, peers can start to be introduced successfully. I'm going to do a whole show on what we can do to facilitate peer interaction. If a kid isn't there yet, but just know that, that that's going to be in a few weeks uh, in this series, so several more shows. Uh, but but I just I just want to mention this here because sometimes as therapists and as parents we jump away ahead. So this is where parallel play comes in. And after a child is comfortable with parallel play, and uh, again we see all these nice play things language wise. We see that they they're using a lot of uh, short phrases and they even start to get some sentences. You know four five six words that they're using right now, and they also start to do again more of the give and take so that they're asking and answering WH questions. And so can you see how all of this is just so beautifully interconnected? So now they've bumped up. They're, they're not only combining actions and combining toys. That's the nonverbal piece. They're doing it verbally. They've, they're combining words now to make it phrases. And now we're making it more elaborate, just like their play has gotten more elaborate, more sophisticated. Now their language is more sophisticated. So they've bumped up with that too. 
the last stage of play that we're looking at for this earliest developmental period, and this is again in toddlers and preschoolers, early preschoolers, and we're getting to uh, the stage of play that develops right at about 36 months, and that's early role play and games with rules. And so these are a true pretending a child can uh, role play, he can be a superhero, he can be the farmer, he can be the doctor. And then kids also uh, start to change endings. So let's say that he's pretended to serve you food. Now he might pretend uh, that the food is hot or you might pretend you know, that the food is yucky and that you wanna order something different and have him come back so that the ending has changed. That you, you, so this is, that's one of the things that you need to do as a therapist. If a kid has played the same kind of game over and over and over. That's one of the things that we can do to help move them to this role, uh, this stage when they are ready and help them take another role. And, and, and you do something different here too with, uh, you know, just, just change it up a little bit. Instead of them being the person that brings the food, you be the person that brings the food to them. And so they are the, the customer in the restaurant instead of the server in the restaurant. And so think about how you can do that. Dress up and props. I mean, I've said props before, but in these last few stages that we've talked about, kids have to have things to pretend with. And I mean, we like the idea of object substitution and that is fabulous. We love it when a kid takes a blanket and puts it on and pretends that it's a cape. That's great. But sometimes our little guys with autism need more help than that. And so they need to have more realistic props so they can kind of get there in their little minds. And, and this is great for us as therapists, as speech language pathologists, because we've got, again, a lot more to talk about. So a lot more opportunities to uh, introduce new words, to really work on vocabulary expansion. And we certainly can work on, uh, we talked about form, so work on early grammar, work on things like plurals, work on uh, other kinds of markers, pronouns, those kinds of things. And certainly um, with form, their function, their Pragmatics. We talked about how pragmatics really comes back in, come in at the single level, which was way back up, single word level, which is way back up at beginning functional play. But certainly as we move through this, and particularly for kids with autism, we have to always think about how they're using their words. Not just that they're saying something, but can they request? Can they do more than label it? Can they use that word to comment? Can they use that word to respond in a question? So think about those things things too. So this was a ton of information in this show. I've also, uh, in this last few minutes, let me direct your attention to the questions that determine our starting points there. So we kind of look at, I just teased out some questions that kind of show you where a kid is. And our main point for doing this, again, is what? It's so that you meet a child where he is and that you do not start at a level where there is no way that you or that kid can be successful. And so the questions are right here. And take a look at that on your handouts. Does a toddler play appropriately with any toy? So what do you do? If he doesn't, you introduce a few toys from that first little level and just see what happens. And then you work toward uh, establishing more functional play with those. Next question, does a kid already operate toys with knobs, with levers, with buttons beyond that repetitive uh, button pushing? If no, there's your first goal. You're beginning to get, going to begin with cause and effect toys and toys that teach a variety of motor movements. Does a kid understand those important cognitive concepts? We talked about uh, cause and effect, so many cause and effect toys, and we sort of talked about that in the previous question. That's where you know I've got to dive in here. I've got to get variety. He can't just play with one kind of cause and effect toy. He needs to understand how 
you know, five or six different cause and effect toys operate. So uh, look for variety here and look not just for that one shot or one example that a kid is uh, performing something. We need to see lots of examples of uh, how a kid plays in each particular stage. And so you've got the questions there. And then just to finish up our troubleshooting tips, if a kid isn't playing with you, it is so hard to change the kid, but it is easier to change you. So what you need to do is just be super fun, stay and play with that child for just what I've titled this show. So many therapists and so many parents would kind of sit in that observer role or that, you know, you're, you're not a speech analyst. <laughs> you're a therapist. You've got to get in there and play and model that not only for the child so that you are really doing that direct teaching to get him to bump up to the next level, but more importantly uh, for the parents so they can learn how to teach their own children to play and provide that same level of support when you are not there. I mentioned deconstruction. Take a look at that. Start at the end of play with letting kids disassemble a toy or disassemble an activity, uh, which is more difficult uh, or easier for them. The assembly piece is more difficult, so take a look at that. And uh, lastly, I just want to leave you with follow a child's lead. And this is so important with kids with autism. So many times we just want to pull them away from what they're doing. And uh, let's just use an example that I included in the autism workbook. Let's say that you have gotten a kid up and he's, he's working on combining play actions with familiar routines. And you really want him um, uh, to do that. And he, let's, let's say that you're playing with a dollhouse there and he decides... He just wants to get up and play with a balloon. And you were frustrated because you were thinking, what am I going to do with this? I just, I had, I had so many new vocabulary targets in mind. We were going to work on verbs and, you know, we, we were just going to work on, uh, you know, even more symbolic pretending here. You can do the same thing with a balloon. You can pretend that balloon is a baby or you can pretend that balloon is a pillow or you can uh, take that balloon and do something else with it. Pretend that it's, oh gosh, uh, take the drumstick and pretend with the balloon that the balloon is the, the baseball and the drumstick is the bat. So you can see, you can take what a kid is already doing with some creativity and think, how can I work on these same goals with this material that he likes? And so our, our goal here today, our overall focus was talking about appropriate play with toys. But for kids with autism, lots of times we just, we have to meet them where they are and think, how can I combine what he likes to do and what he's good at with where I want him to be. And use your strategies, even if your materials are different, because most of the time you're still going to be successful. All right, that's it for today. I, as I said, I know I crammed way too much information into this one show, but later after we finish the autism podcast series, we're going to talk about stages of play. But until then, get yourselves a copy of the autism workbook. It will help you develop a comprehensive treatment plan for any toddler or preschooler that's exhibiting red flags for autism. If you're a parent and you're worried about autism, this book can help you know what to do uh, to best help your child. All right, take a look at getting your continuing education credit. If you're a therapist, if you've listened to this show or watched this show on YouTube, don't leave your CE hours on the table. Go to teachmetotalk.com and you can get an hour's credit for only five bucks. All right, that's it. That's really it. I'm Laura Mize. Uh, thanks so much for watching this episode of teachmetotalk.com's podcast.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.